Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this third episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. This week, I'm going to take on the topic of the recent coronavirus outbreak and how it's impacting the world. Specifically, I'm going to discuss how the medical developments are interacting with technological developments to impact our economy, our society, and our politics. For those of you that know me well, you've known that I've been teaching a class at Harvard for the past few years called Humanity and Its Challenges. This is a class about systems thinking approaches and how connecting dots can be more powerful than merely generating dots, specifically when it comes to emergent complex phenomenon and borderless threat. And pandemics are a classic case of a problem, an emergent problem or phenomenon that crosses silos and defies simple reductionist approaches to understanding how they develop and the impacts they have. So let me begin by describing how I teach my class at Harvard on uh, the pandemic session or the case. Um, And it really begins with students watching a movie. So I have students watch the movie Contagion, which for years was dismissed by students as being a Hollywood-esque drama that included unnecessary exaggerations of how the world may turn out in the movie. Um, Well, Sadly, students this year didn't think so. Uh, They could envision a world not dissimilar to that which the movie portrayed, uh, which which included massive uh, fatalities and lots of breakdowns uh, of social order, political order, etc. It's worth watching if you haven't seen it, particularly in light of what's happening in the world today. Uh, None of my students are shocked by containment. None of them are shocked by travel restrictions. None of them are shocked by overwhelmed hospitals and systems. Um, And this is, again, something I've been teaching about now for, for going on five years. And one of the things we talk about is the fact that a lot of these viruses that have entered the human population and proved to be so contagious actually originate in animals. Specifically, a disproportionate number of these viruses come from bats, primates, and rats. And the process of jumping from one species to another is known as zoonosis. And for any of you that wish to learn more or to truly understand the process of zoonosis, the history of zoonosis, and how it's transpired over time, I'd highly encourage you to read the book Spillover by David Quammen. I've read it. I think it's fabulous in terms of really giving you an appreciation for these dynamics. And what you learn is that everything from cultural dynamics in certain parts of Africa where they consume bushmeat, straight on through economic development in which we've pushed into animal ecosystems uh, are causing increasing likely uh, scenarios, increasingly likely scenarios of zoonosis. And that's a problem. Uh, And what it means really is that pandemic risk today uh, is unlikely to disappear tomorrow, uh, ever. In fact, as humans interact with more and more animal ecosystems, this is probably likely to occur more frequently, not less frequently. So that's a little bit about the class at Harvard. Um, This last week, my class was fortunate enough to have Juliet KM come and spend some time with us. 
she's currently the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she is faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. Uh, she also wrote a book called Security Mom, and she was just absolutely fabulous. One of the key things she described to the class, which I found fascinating, and I think my students did as well, was about her experience uh, in the Obama administration where she was, I think it was the Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs. Um, and I think she was associated with the Department of Homeland Security, but she played a role in the H1N1 pandemic. And she described the dynamics that the government went through in terms of acknowledging it as a big risk and how they went ahead to respond. One of the things she noted was it is impossible to prevent these dynamics. And part of it is to prepare in advance, knowing that they're coming, and then also to develop the resiliency to react quickly without dramatic impact on our way of life. And so um, that was a, a fascinating dynamic. I'd encourage you to read some of her writing. She's written extensively for The Atlantic. Uh, she serves, I think, uh, as CNN's, uh, one of CNN's national security uh, advisors and is often on uh, NPR, etc. cetera. Uh, just fabulous. In fact, I'd really encourage you to, to spend some time reading what Juliet had to say about this pandemic. Uh, she's been in the in the news a lot, and so uh, really appreciated her spending some time with us. Nevertheless, um, that's something we did in my class. Let me move on and talk a little bit about how I think the reason the coronavirus is getting so much attention, particularly the medical impact and how dramatic it could be. I'm not a doctor, or at least, <laughs> well, at least not a medical doctor. Um, and one of the things that I've done is tried to read a lot about those who know a lot more about this than I do, uh, specifically public health professionals and those that have a great appreciation for the risks that are involved here. And simple math regarding the size of this potential uh, pandemic is absolutely frightening. Uh, and the reason it's frightening is we can go through, actually Mark Lipschitz, who's a scholar in public health here at Harvard as well, uh, has suggested that it might infect, the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus outbreak might infect up to 60%. Now he admits that's an extreme case scenario, but let's just go with it for a second. And so if we have a 60% infection rate in the United States, which has a population of 320, 325 million people, uh, that implies somewhere like 190 million people will get infected in America. And if we have a mortality rate of 1% to 2%, actually the World Health Organization suggested earlier this week that it might be as high as 3 or 3.5%, 3 but let's just say it's 1%. That implies 1.9 million people will die from the novel coronavirus in America. That is a stunning number. And it's part of the reason I think people have gotten so uh, focused on this rapidly. And so the, uh, the, the you know, million plus deaths from this disease is problematic, not only because the number is so large, but also because it's disproportionately going to be felt among older and more vulnerable populations. And so the younger, the working age, the healthy will likely not feel as much, which means the, the sort of the mortality rate or the fatality rate among the most vulnerable uh, is going to be much higher. And so that is a real problem. And that's part of the reason why it is so scary. In fact, uh, there's also a fabulous post on Medium uh, that I read by... Tomas, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, P-A-O, P-U-E-Y-O, P-O-Y-O, 
um, Tomas, T-O-M-A-S. He wrote a piece called Coronavirus, Why You Must Act Now. I'd really encourage you to read it. It's a long piece. It's had millions of views. Um, and he's updated. It's been translated uh, into numerous languages. And it just explains so crystal clearly why this is an essential topic to pay attention to on a personal level, as well as a community level, as a business leader, as a political leader, and what you should do about it. So, um, but actually, let's go back to Harvard for a second, because one of the dynamics that transpired this past week was Harvard decided to effectively shut down all teaching efforts uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and faculty members such as uh, me and my colleagues have been asked to remove any uh, in-class gatherings from the agenda and to move all classes to a virtual format using Zoom technologies. And so that's coming. Students were also asked to leave campus by uh, Sunday. So they were given a four or five day notice. Uh, and you can imagine how disruptive this could be to students that live far away, students on financial aid, uh, international students, or what have you. Uh, and this created a, an environment of extreme anxiety, which actually the, the response to it was quite interesting to me, actually a little bit telling. Students, uh, I think, were initially just in a state of disbelief. And so um, I f it almost felt like a party environment uh, the first day. Students were uh, effectively skipping classes, hanging out, heading out to dinner, uh, partying in all ways. Uh, and initially I was kind of disturbed by this, but then thinking about it that you know, seniors who had spent three or four years and were planning on graduating with their peers are suddenly finding themselves dispersed during the time well, they were really planning and looking forward to enjoying uh, sort of a more relaxed time on campus. So I understand the anxiety. I also understand why the university decided to limit the overlap of community spread possibilities. Um, but also, let's think a little bit about the impact of this. Think about the coffee shops that serve Harvard students or that serve any university student in any of these campus towns where colleges have shut down. Uh, those business owners, small business owners that have catered to students and the academic communities are likely going to have a major economic contraction. I mean, their businesses are going to suffer. Think about the restaurants. Think about the hotels that cater to graduation and the transportation that supports that. And all of the industries that are really around a college town. Uh, real big problem. And then, of course, you're starting to see this spread globally. And so if we switch for a moment and think a little bit about the coronavirus from the economic impact perspective, we know it's going to be large. We know it's going to be gigantic. In fact, the numbers that came out of China with their PMI at the end of February were awful, absolutely horrific, just a plunge in economic activity, almost to standstill levels. Uh, it wasn't just a slowdown. This was a massive contraction. And so we know that the economic impact is going to be high. Uh, we know that it's also um, going to impact global GDP. If we're not in a recession in the United States yet, I suspect we will be imminently. Uh, when it gets dated, we'll see, and we'll learn sort of after the fact. But the other thing it's going to do is it's going to cause supply chains to shift. If you think about the sort of geography of global manufacturing, it was optimized towards just-in-time, lowest-cost, most efficient supply chains that, frankly, uh, wound their ways through Asia uh, and brought final products and goods to developed markets where there was larger consumer purchasing power. 
Now, what we're seeing, and frankly, it started well before the coronavirus outbreak, was the uh, the trade wars and protectionism were causing boardrooms to rethink where their supply chains were organized uh, from a political risk perspective, a vulnerability perspective. And then, of course, the coronavirus, I think, is just going to accelerate that. We heard from companies in Europe saying they weren't able to get parts, and now we're going to see this compound globally as there's more and more countries shutting down their their border or closing their borders and shutting down their economic activity to combat this disease. Uh, so supply chains, I think, are going to shift also, and they're going to shift rapidly. Um, in fact, I, I doubt we're going to probably... I don't think business will be conducted the same perhaps ever again, um, at least in terms of a global sourcing and supply chain model. And then, of course, we know that the financial markets have taken notice. Uh, the volatility we've seen in the past few weeks has just been unbelievable. One measure of volatility is known as the VIX index. For those that follow financial markets, I'm sure you'll understand. Uh, but those who don't, this is a, a measure of the price uh, being put on volatility. And it went through the roof this week, uh, back to levels not seen since the, glo the, the global financial crisis. Um, so volatility got expensive. And we saw the Dow down 10%, up 10%, and all sorts of volatility like that, uh, which creates a lot of anxiety for those in the financial markets. So let's expect more of that in the weeks and months to come here. Um, another impact that this may be having on the financial markets is one that I've written extensively about, is about this passive investing bubble. Um, and I think... You know, you never know what the catalyst is going to be when something is highly unsustainable, but it is very possible the coronavirus could be the catalyst to burst the passive investing bubble. That dynamic, which I called the, the virtuous cycle of inflows driving higher prices, driving more inflows, predominantly because of market cap weighted indices, but other dynamics as well, uh, that, that virtuous cycle could in fact be turning vicious here. And if it does turn vicious, I'm not saying it has, but I'm saying it's possible. If it does turn vicious, we could see a situation where selling pressure creates lower prices, which creates more selling pressure, which creates lower prices, et cetera. And all of the benefits we've had of inflows over the last, call it five to 10 years, uh, could unwind. Um, and I'm not suggesting we go all the way back, but I think we could see a very uh, disrupted financial system here in the short run. And asset prices would, would, would feel a big, big pinch in that dynamic. Um, and then, of course, there's the political impact, which I think is absolutely enormous one that we have to think about more seriously than we have. We know that the case of uh, Iran has created you know, huge disruption in the senior leadership. Uh, something like 10% of the senior leadership of that country has contracted the disease. Several have died from the disease. And it's widely understood that they've underreported the number of infections in their country. In fact, uh, there's a fabulous article written in The Atlantic uh, that I read uh, called Iran has far more coronavirus cases than it is letting on. 
the author, uh, Graham Wood, actually went through and did what I thought was a fascinating job of analyzing possible numbers of infections. And he went through all different types of analyses to come to it, talking about number of members of parliament that were contracted, and if that were the case, how what it might imply for the population as a whole. He looked at number of people on flights evacuating and sort of what their, um, what their infection rates were. Anyway, to make a long story short, his average guesstimate, admittedly crude, and he admits that as well, is that the country might have as many as 2 million people infected with coronavirus right now. Um, again, I'd encourage you to read his article. It's called Iran Has Far More Coronavirus Cases Than It Is Letting On by Graham Wood in The Atlantic. Um, so anyway, what does that mean for the country? If you think about how the Iranian political regime could change because of this, this is massively disruptive on the political sphere. And then of course, if you really want to think about massive disruption, one we could one thing we could do is move over to thinking about China, uh, the origins of this disease, and stop and say, uh-oh, what does this mean for the Chinese Communist Party? There, there are lots of people starting to hypothesize that the biggest risk to China of the coronavirus outbreak is not necessarily economic, but instead is political. Specifically, um, there's a thought that this may impact the regime's credibility with the people, that in fact the Chinese people may conclude that the Communist Party has lost its mandate of heaven to rule over them. Uh, now why is that? Part of this has to do with transparency, part of it has to do with taking the early warning signs, those who are raising their hand uh, and trying to alert authorities that something was wrong and you know, getting them uh, having those people effectively thrown in jail for rumor mongering and uh, what have you, um, that really undermined the sense of the Communist parties looking out for the people's best interests rather than their own interests. Uh, interestingly enough, this reminded me of Chernobyl. If you haven't seen the miniseries, the HBO miniseries called Chernobyl, I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, after watching it, um, I also read a bunch of uh, Gorbachev's writings and one of the things Mikhail Gorbachev said is that he believes that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union really began to end because of the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. And the reason he said that is that it accelerated glasnost or his policy of openness and transparency because it was simply too hard to hide. Um, and that ultimately led to an inconsistency with the information control that tends to accompany authoritarian regimes and communist systems. And Gorbachev's thesis was, you know, ultimately the openness, the transparency became so inconsistent with the party rule that the system just broke down. And not suggesting this is likely in the short run in China, but I'm merely suggesting this is a possible scenario. Now, on the flip side, another scenario is this actually increases the credibility of the Chinese Communist Party, especially as the rest of the world fumbles with dealing with coronavirus. It's conceivable that with some time and distance that people will conclude, oh my goodness, the Chinese really were efficient and effective at dealing with this issue. Sure, it's shocking today that they had 100,000 cases or you know 3,000 plus deaths, 
But again, if you go back to the numbers I mentioned as potential here in the United States, um, that would be actually a miraculous success to have only 100,000 plus people infected in China with only 3,000 or so dead. Even if they're off by a factor of 10, that would still be impressive given the potential risk of this disease. So um, anyway, different ways to think about the Chinese communist regime. And then, of course, we have to. It's simply, it would be imprudent not to comment on the risk of the coronavirus developments to the U.S. political process. Uh, we've seen several states already cancel primaries, I th or not cancel, excuse me, postpone. So we've seen Louisiana and Georgia both agree to postpone the primaries. And then, uh, so there's disruption risk to the process, but there's also disruption risk to the candidates. If we stop and think about this for a moment, the three leading candidates, Trump, Biden, and Bernie, are all old white men who are in the category of most, of most vulnerable, according to CDC statistics. And so this is really, really concerning because it's conceivable that one or more of the three contracts the illness. They're out there on the campaign trail interacting with lots of people in group settings, so the risk of infection might be higher than the ordinary person, um, and they're also more vulnerable. And so is it conceivable that one or more contracts the disease or, God forbid, even dies from the disease? Uh, well, let's put it this way. It's a higher risk than you'd want to bear in a, in a democratic process like the one we run here in America. And so that's a disturbing development as well. So if we stop and think about it, this coronavirus, even though it was initially described by many people as, oh, it's just the flu, uh, is far more than the flu. And I actually think it's conceivable this could cause the world economy to slow so dramatically that uh, without trying to... Um, to, to, to generate more fear than is necessary, it could have massive economic implications far greater than that of a normal garden variety recession. Now, does this mean we're heading into a depression? Um, let me put it this way. I'm not calling for that, but it's highly possible. It's worth watching the developments over the next weeks and months to see if that in fact happens. But um, it wouldn't be out of my uh, domain of possibilities at this stage. So, um, a little quick recap here. We've had uh, an economic impact, massive economic slowdown in China, and of course Italy, of course Iran, of course the U.S. It's starting now. The lockdowns are, are increasing the economic impact, but improving the likelihood of a slower um, spread rate. Um, and then we have the financial markets taking due notice here with the Dow and, and, and world indices jumping like up and down daily by multiple percents. Um, and then, of course, the general downdraft is such that the impact is, of course, on financial markets been negative. Um, and then if there's the political impact, which, as we've seen from thinking about what's happened in Iran and their political leadership to the possible uh, two scenarios with China, either they come out looking really great or really horrible. Uh, it's unclear yet, but the Communist Party, I'm sure, is going to you know, not be left untouched by this disease. Um, straight on through here in America, where the political process is potentially disrupted. I mean, you might even imagine a scenario where elections this November are postponed um, for for medical reasons. And, you know, to make it nonpartisan, you could even imagine 
the CDC and other global health professionals calling for a delay of the U.S. election. Um, sounds blasphemous today, but it's, it may not be so uh, out of the park tomorrow. And as we do watch the developments of the coronavirus going forward, it's also worth highlighting something that many people have dismissed as conspiracy theory, and frankly, it may in fact be a conspiracy theory, but it's worth at least addressing uh, the fact that this coronavirus may in fact have been a bioweapon. Now, I would normally not give such ideas credence, except recently here in the past week or so, we've had a Chinese foreign ministry uh, spokesperson come out and actually accuse the United States Army as having brought the virus to China. Uh, and then we also had accusations in reverse, um, where some have suggested this was the ultimate asymmetric weapon in which the Chinese, uh, unfortunately, it got released from their own labs, uh, but they knew it was uh, a really dangerous pathogen, and so they immediately clamped down, and yes, they had 100,000 people get infected or so, and yes, they had 3,000 or so people die, but that's going to be nothing compared to what the impact will be on the rest of the world. Again, one estimate for Iran is that there may be millions of people already infected. Um, and again, the estimates that I just walked through back of the envelope math with you here on this podcast for the United States is that, you know, you could imagine a million or more people dying here in the United States as well. And so, you know, it's conceivable given that asymmetry that it was in fact an asymmetric uh, military attack. Again, not suggesting that this is um, true, not suggesting that this is anything but a theory at this point, but the fact that we had not only the Chinese foreign ministry accuse the United States of this, but then apparently the deputy secretary of, for East Asia uh, here in the United States calling in the Chinese ambassador and asking uh, for explanations of this and having it... Uh, apparently get very defensive, or so it's being reported. In any case, um, worth watching. These are fascinating times. This coronavirus is clearly going to be a defining issue for those of this generation. So uh, I guess the bottom line message I have for everyone here is keep paying attention to it. I know it causes anxiety for some to stay up on the news flow, um, and so obviously don't do it if it really bothers you, but I do think this is something that is likely, unfortunately, to get worse before it gets better. I think there'll be more countries with lockdowns, there'll be more travel restrictions, there may even be domestic containment zones that uh, prevent free movement of people and goods across borders, whether they're state borders or country borders. Um, I think that's happening and is going to have happen more frequently, unfortunately. Um, so I guess uh, the advice I have is be prepared, think about this, think through it, and that will hopefully help us navigate through this massive uncertainty. Okay, so the last tidbit I have for you for this podcast is a sales pitch. Apologies, but if you've listened this long, I assume maybe you have an interest. So many of you know the title of my forthcoming book is Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence, and that book will be released by HBR Press this summer. To incentivize pre-orders, uh, the book is available on Amazon.com for pre-order, but to incentivize you to do so, one of the things I'm offering is for those who pre-buy the book or pre-order the book and send a copy of the receipt to me, 
I will send you one of the essays I've written about navigating uncertainty that is not publicly available. And so um, I've written an essay called Navigating Uncertainty, Thinking in Futures, and uh, I will send it to those who pre-order the book. So again, what I'd like you to do is if you purchase the book on Amazon, uh, you take the receipt and forward the receipt to support, S-U-P-P-O-R-T, at manshuramani.com. So it's, again, support at M-A-N-S-H-A-R-A-M-A-N-I. Dot com. So send a copy of the receipt, and I will send you a PDF of my essay, and I hope you will find it useful. So that's all I have for you on this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. Until next time, I really do hope all of you stay safe, coronavirus-free, and are able to wash your hands early and often, as I believe the protocol calls for, um, but also uh, that you were able to navigate through the overwhelming chaos and financial and economic uncertainty that's plaguing our time uh, successfully. So best wishes and good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchramani's website at www.manshuramani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.